0: American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network, and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give.
1: Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about an extraordinary American artist, but he's someone you've probably never heard of the great Carl Schmidt. Now, we both have personal ties to Schmidt. He was born and raised in Warren, Ohio, which is about 25 minutes from your childhood home. And I graduated from and then taught at the Trivium School in Lancaster, Massachusetts which is a classic education college preparatory school established by his son, John, and still run by his grandson, William.
0: We've said it before and we'll say it again, I'm sure. It is a small Catholic world. The neat thing about these connections is how they can help us realize that these people we talk about are real people who lived and worked in a real context. And while we may be separated by time, we are connected by a place and by the faith, of course.
1: And in the case of Carl Schmidt, we can also see more about him by looking at his paintings.
0: Right. And he had strong opinions about art and what it was for.
1: Yeah, we'll talk about that later. But let's start with his background and how he rose to artistic prominence.
0: So Carl Schmidt was born on May 6th, 1889 in Warren, Ohio, which is just a few miles northwest of Youngstown, my hometown. From an early age, he showed artistic promise. He once said that he had been an artist from the time he was able to see. As a teen, he caught the attention of a prominent local businesswoman, Zell Hart Deming. Deming owned the Warren Tribune, the major newspaper of the region, and was a great supporter of the arts. In 1906, with Deming's financial backing, Schmidt went to New York to begin formal studies as an artist. He was 17.
1: Schmidt excelled in New York, first at the Chase School, then at the National Academy of Design. While studying, he was introduced to a growing community of artists in nearby Silvermine, Connecticut. His first exhibition there was in 1910, and Silvermine would figure in his life from that point forward. He graduated in 1912 and began receiving commissions in both New York and back in Ohio.
0: In Ohio, his commissions included some from noted industrialists Henry Wick and Joseph Butler, two names prominent to this day in Youngstown. The second, Butler, is important because he founded the first art museum dedicated solely to American artists in the U.S.
1: That museum, the Butler Institute of American Art, still stands today in Youngstown, notably on... Wick Avenue.
0: I went there many times growing up. It is a fantastic museum. In 1913, again with the support of Zell Hart Deming, Schmidt went to Italy where he studied in Florence and was profoundly influenced by the works of Michelangelo, Raphael, other masters, as well as by the Italian countryside. His sense of light, color, and composition really began to take their own shape during this stay.
1: But beyond the technical side of painting, his time in Italy also reinforced his understanding of the purpose of art and the role art should play in one's life and the life of a culture.
0: Yes, he was a devout Catholic his entire life. His faith informed his understanding of how nature and our ability to produce things like art fit into the designs and plans of God. He understood that artistic ability was a tool given to humanity to be used to glorify God art was not an end in itself. He also understood that the sacramental and liturgical life was the real life that should inform every other aspect of life. These understandings affected how he approached his craft. Then, while he was in Italy, he saw firsthand how the great art that was all around was just imbued with sacramental and sacred themes. He observed that the Middle Ages, in particular, were a time of great artistic output because during the Middle Ages, the Blessed Sacrament was honored. And he believed that, due to this, the Middle Ages were the greatest time for art, that art had been on the decline since the 14th century.
1: His stay in Italy was cut short by the outbreak of World War I, but this was a theme that would inform his approach to art and to life for the rest of his very long life.
0: When he returned to the States, both his output and his reputation grew so rapidly that he was able to open his own studio in New York City in 1916. When the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, he was drafted and spent time with the Army, drawing maps in Washington. After the war, he married Gertrude Lord, the daughter of a prominent New York architect, and they bought a one-acre plot with a small dilapidated building in Silvermine, Connecticut. They built a home, and this location allowed him to be near enough to his New York studio—it was only one hour by train— but removed enough from the hustle and bustle of the city to allow him to paint—
1: it also put him in the company of other artists who supported each other with friendly criticism and who collaborated on exhibitions.
0: But painting wasn't all he did. He also maintained journals as he painted, usually just making quick notes about things he learned about painting as he did it. But his writing and thinking were not confined to the technical aspects of painting. His thought branched out to metaphysics, economics, larger themes of aesthetics. And his writings would also include essays on all of these subjects. But we'll talk more about his writings in a bit. Let's continue with his life narrative. Silvermine would be Gertrude and Carl's home for the rest of their long lives, and it's where they raised their ten children.
1: That's not to say they never left. In the 1920s, the entire family went to France, where Carl spent a great deal of time studying and working in the magnificent medieval Gothic cathedral at Chartres. Again, he was interested in how the great masters of the Middle Ages wove their artistic craft and the life of the sacraments together.
0: And Carl's profile rose during this time. His paintings would be seen all over the U.S. Through the 19-teens and 1920s, his paintings were included in exhibitions such as the Carnegie International and numerous times at the Corcoran Gallery in Washington, D.C., the Art Institute of Chicago, the National Academy of Design, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and many additional exhibitions in New York, as well as the annual exhibitions at Silvermine. But this heightened profile did not translate into financial success. Karl Schmidt was not interested in self-promotion or the business side of art. Art to him was never meant as a means to get rich. It was just what he did. It was his vocation. In 1933 he wrote, "My philosophy may be summed up thus: First, to receive from God gratefully everything possible that I can get. Second, to give back to God through my neighbor" Everything which I can give. To give gifts to my neighbor, I must use art because a gift must be made. Hence, I must be an artist.
1: So, his God given purpose in life was to paint and to paint well, and that's what he did. But poverty and hunger were constant visitors for the Schmidts. They got along by the grace of God, but the income stream wasn't exactly constant. This was exacerbated in the 1930s by two things. First, of course, the Great Depression, and also by Carl's own health.
0: During the 1930s, he also caught the attention of Peter Morin, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement.
1: Morin also was instrumental in the conversion and life of Dorothy Day, whom we talked about in episode 45 of this podcast.
0: Morin and a writer for the Catholic Worker newspaper spent time with Schmidt discussing his art, his philosophy, and social justice. The writer, Donald Powell, recalled later that during a conversation on social justice, Schmidt offered the opinion that, quote, "...social justice could be obtained only by starting with the individual. That is, when the individual was just, society was just." and that the Catholic could do the most by example, which means, in effect, that Catholics must be converted to Catholicism before attempting to convert non-Catholics to it,
1: So justice, like art, requires a right understanding of God and one's place in relation to God. And then all good things, like beautiful and good art, and like justice, flow naturally. Seems simple. Of course. And it is simple. We just have to overcome ourselves and cooperate with grace.
0: I'm working on it, it just, but it takes a lifetime. Yes. And as mentioned, the other major challenge for Carl Schmidt in the 1930s was a breakdown in his health. He had battled tuberculosis for many years, but in 1937, a bad attack of the disease forced him to stop work and seek treatment in a sanatorium in the Italian Alps. His whole family joined him in 1938, and while they were living there, he was forced to sell his New York studio. His health did improve, which allowed the Schmidt to travel a bit and spend time in Rome. It was there that Carl met Hilaire Belloc and the philosopher George Santayana. Schmidt and Belloc would carry on a considerable correspondence after that, including Schmidt contributing articles to Chesterton's Weekly Review, which Belloc edited at the time. The Schmidt's stay in Italy came to an abrupt end in 1939, however, with the outbreak of World War II.
1: So his first stay in Italy ended with World War 1 and his second ended with World War 2. Yeah,
0: he had the worst timing on his stays in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the Schmidts returned to the US and settled back at Silvermine, Connecticut, and that's pretty much where Carl Schmidt spent the rest of his 50 years painting, painting and more painting.
1: In the 1950s his son built him a studio on the family property. I'm sure Gertrude was happy to get back whatever part of the house he had taken over for his painting.
0: Yeah, probably. And his life was spent mostly in that studio, just painting. Again, he didn't care for self-promotion and he hated to worry about exhibitions, though he knew he had to endure them. Once, a film crew came to interview him, and he forced them to wait until the evenings to do the interviews because he would not give up his precious daylight hours for painting. Schmidt painted well into his 90s, only stopping months before his 100th birthday in 1989. It was just a few months later that he died on October 25th, 1989.
1: That date happened to be his and Gertrude's 75th wedding anniversary. 75. We'll get there.
0: (laughs) The hundreds of paintings, sketches, and drawings that he had left behind were divided up among his 10 children, with some finding their way into public museums and many more being held in private collections. One painting, a portrait of the poet Hart Crane, who was a nephew of his original benefactress, Zell Hart Deming, hangs in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. I haven't seen that portrait in person, but it can be seen online. We'll link to it in the show notes. It is a good example of some of the characteristics of Schmidt's style. It's a bit gauzy and indistinct. It more or less glows with a light from within. Schmidt wasn't a straight-out impressionist. When he painted someone, he left enough details to be sure who the person was, but he did not go in for naturalism.
1: Right. His paintings were not meant to look like photographs, but rather to convey a sense about the subject, using muted colors and subtle lighting and proportion and composition to convey beauty and truth, not just an image.
0: The effect he achieves displays his images as a unified whole where frequently nothing in particular demands your attention and focus.
1: So his works occupy a space between the impressionists of the 19th century and the modern artists of the 20th century whose work frequently abandoned anything specific and concrete and were more typically at the service of their own purposes rather than conveying God's beauty and truth and goodness.
0: And Schmidt had an approach to modern art and art in general that I really appreciate. First, when someone would press him for a meaning behind his own art, he would tell them, just look at it more. Knowing his sacramental approach to art, this makes me think of icons. If you know the meaning and purpose of iconography, icons are not just works of art. They are prayers in color and shape. When one beholds an icon, the viewer should behold it as a prayer, not just a picture. One should spend time considering the elements, the arrangement of the elements, every aspect of the way the faces, hands, arms, other elements are placed, and allow the truth of God that was written into the icon to lift one's mind and heart to God. Now, I can't say that's exactly what Schmidt meant, but it really fits.
1: Another explanation for that response, just to look at it more, can be found in his 1922 essay, some brief suggestions of my main beliefs in art, where he says, I shall attempt to write some brief suggestions of my main beliefs in art. If they seem vague, I can plead that the artist is filled with the desire to express through vision alone. When he speaks, it is with the good, though perhaps unfortunate, intention of bridging, however inadequately, the gap which exists between the aesthetic and rationalistic extremes. When he speaks, he is painfully aware of the strangeness of his medium and that his muse is displeased at the digression. That, in a word, he is perilously close to talking rubbish.
0: In other words, an artist communicates what he is thinking by producing art. Asking an artist to use words to explain his art would be like asking a gifted orator to depict what he had to say in a drawing.
1: And this perspective gave him a more genial approach to modern art than one might expect of a traditionalist like him. Right.
0: He didn't just immediately pan it as inane and useless as I'm wont to do. What he would say was that it was immature. The artists were seeking, but hadn't turned the right direction, or they hadn't yet broken through the veil to realize that what they were pursuing was God and his goodness, truth, and beauty. They displayed skill, but lacked vision beyond, frankly, their own navels. So the legacy of Carl Schmidt is still being written.
1: Among his sons, three fought in World War II, including two with the famed 10th Mountain Division. One became a priest, and one, John, went into education. He helped to co-found Thomas Aquinas College in California, Thomas More College in New Hampshire, and then the Trivium School, where he served as the first headmaster. Trivium uses a classical curriculum and a classic approach to education to form high school boys and girls with a classic Western education. As I said, I graduated from Trivium School, as did many of my brothers and sisters. And while there, I actually took classes in art from John Smith. And actually, produce something somewhat passable since I am not at all an artist. <laughs> I believe there are some original Carl Schmidt paintings hanging in the school building.
0: John's eldest son, William, is now the headmaster of Trivium, while his youngest son, Samuel, founded the Carl Schmidt Foundation in 1996 to preserve the memory and promote the work and writings of Carl Schmidt. The foundation owns and maintains the Schmidt family home and Carl's studio in Silvermine, Connecticut. And they offer exhibitions as well as private showings of the many Carl Schmidt works still housed at the studio. We'll link to the foundation's website in our show notes. On it, many of Schmidt's writings and works of art can be found.:
1: The American poet Dana Joya, who served for a time as the chair of the National Endowment for the Arts, said, "Carl Schmidt was an important twentieth century American painter who not only deserves your attention but will reward it." Take some time and sit with some of Schmidt's paintings and writings and come to know more about this excellent American Catholic painter. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And we ask you to consider supporting the work of SQPN.
0: Yes, now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 per month, after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all of our shows, including American Catholic history, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com give today.
1: To learn more about Carl Schmidt to find previous episodes or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country, please visit sqpn.com slash history. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster crow
0: And I'm Tom Crow.
1: Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.